I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Please join me in a very warm welcome to our panel. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much, uh, Claire. Wow, it's a Friday night and you've all come out and packed a bookshop for a writer who isn't even here. <laughs> unless she is. Or he is. One day, that one day, that will work. Just tell us a little bit about the, the business of translating, about how the kind of mechanics of it work over such a long series with an author who is not present? Well, first of all, I should say that I don't know who the author is, and I've never, I've never met her, I've never had any direct contact with her. All of my contacts have been through the publisher, who, as far as I know, are the only people that know her, um, or know who she is, know her, I would say. So if I have questions, I send them to the publisher, um, and she responds through the publisher, basically. Um, I mean... The, the books have come out in, over a period of... Well, the Days of Abandonment came out in 2005, and the, the first Neapolitan novel came out in 2011. There were two, the two shorter novels in between. I mean, I think the... Well, I guess this isn't exactly what you asked, but, but there's a huge difference between... I mean, Lisa sort of hinted at it, between the, the earlier novels. First of all, the Neapolitan novels, each book is about twice as long as the earlier novels. So that's already a bigger job. Um, <laughs> Than, than the earlier one, and the earlier ones are, in a sense, I mean, they're very, they're, they're limited in in scope, in the sense that they take place over a very short period of time. Um, they are about really one experience and many ramifications of that experience, but basically one experience. I mean, the days of abandonment is about, you could say, well, it's about a woman whose husband leaves her. I mean, that's pretty reductive, but. Um, but that, that was a very intense experience. I mean, not that the Neapolitan books aren't, but they're basically, there aren't that many characters. Um, it's really an emotional drain. <laughs> uh, the Neapolitan novels, obviously on a vaster scale, but many of the themes are similar. The narrators all are women of a certain age, um, looking at their lives. And they're not exactly the same, but there, there are certain features. And... But the Neapolitan novels also have, they cover 60 years. They are um, really about a generation, almost. I mean, the whole, someone's entire life. And that, and with many, many characters. So it was much more like living in a, living in another world, a, a more open world than 
the other novels, but a very um, well-populated one. So I felt as if I had these, these other people in my life who I then, of course, missed when they were, when they were gone. <laughs> so that's a little bit. But, 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 yes, but knowing that they're, they're kind of more coming down the pipeline and that story is going to, to please. I just want to take a very, very quick straw poll so we don't do horrible spoilers, etc. Where are we all with this? Who's read everything? <laughs> don't worry, you're, I'm gonna, you'll be counted too. You, have you, what have you read? Three, one. Okay. So you know the beginning and you know that in the beginning, to a certain extent is the end. And this, I thought, was a kind of very fascinating thing about the books, and, and I want to sort of talk about a bit here. At the beginning of this 60-year story, we know kind of how it's, how it's going to end. We know it's going to end with the disappearance of a key character. And that, to me, allied with another thing that, interestingly enough, Parante just starts conversations all the time. I just said downstairs... What I love about them is the way those little family, potted family histories at the beginning of books are just like something from a fairy tale. They just make you feel those book, those people aren't really real. They're kind of fairy tale characters, to which two people said, really? I didn't think that at all. <laughs> so it's, that, it's just that kind of endless sort of um, inter- battle of interpretation. Um, but it's re- very interesting, isn't it, the way she just tells you that, that Lena is gone at the beginning. Well, entirely, but isn't that true? For, I mean, again, this is breaking breaking the entire thing, fiction into life the entire time. But um, isn't every ending in the beginning? You know, when you look back on a love affair, when you look back on a friendship, when you look back on I don't know, I I don't know. She teaches me a lot about life. She makes me think about my life quite a lot when I read her. And about friendship. I mean, obviously about friendship. That's what what they're about. But about that sort of very strange psychological territory. I mean, this is something that you write about a lot, Lisa. Yes. <laughs> um, well, I don't quite know where to begin with all this, because it is, it, it's, you know, the books are incredibly rich um, on the relations between people. And I think, you know, the, the beginning with the dolls is also very interesting. And dolls are um, extraordinary objects, particularly, I think, for women. Because dolls are women who are all appearance and yet have a strange inner life that you don't know about and who don't have language. And one of the things these books do is that they actually show you the way this acquisition of language in the world that she's describing is in large part the acquisition of a male language. It's an acquisition of a symbolic order, if you like, that's ruled by men. And, and it seems to me that the dolls, which are the two of them as little girls, I mean, these two uh, little girls who are yet unformed, who have no hold on the real world yet, although they do have characters, <laughs> as we see very clearly mm. in, in their actions, um, that, that just makes the, both the mystery of them and, in, in a sense, the, the kind of... Um, the kind of terror that they hold all the greater. So, I mean, that's that's just a little bit about the beginning. I mean, there's so much more to say about mm. that. Um, I don't know if Anne wants to. Where it begins and then how it takes you so into such radically different territory so quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, thought, I think it's very powerful to begin with that kind of frame. Um, I was immediately... Well, it was, as I said, I mean, it's, it's a 60-year... You know it. You already know it's going to cover somebody's entire life because she's telling you, 
essentially at the beginning. And that to me was compelling because I'm about the same age, um, you know, so I thought, oh, here's my life. I mean, I didn't think it literally, but... Um, That's I, what you I, meant when you said you were born to translate them. You felt like it was parallel, not parallel lives, but... I mean, actually, that was just with the days of abandonment. That was not even a... <laughs> that was a little earlier in my life. Um, no, but I mean, it's... Um, but I did... Yeah, I mean, in a way, maybe that's when I really felt that. was yeah. because I felt this is, this is the story of my generation. And I think but I feel like it's the, the story of mine, in well, some ways. I'd like to hear yes, from you. Why, why is the story of your generation? Well, um, we have, didn't really talk about it, but the, uh, so this is a wonderful piece in M plus One by a young critic, Adeline Torturici, oh, which you should all read. Wonderful. But uh, yeah. the most brilliant part of that piece is this, um, uh, yeah. this discussion of entrustment, right? Mm-hmm. So you might have to help me because I don't remember all the details, but um, it's, uh, so you, and I guess you'll know all about it. So it's the kind of... A, so the 70s feminists. <laughs> so instead of having a relationship, the kind of sisterhood relationship, you have this kind of mentor relationship. That and so that instead of trying to pretend that women are the same, you can acknowledge difference in this kind of mentoring, kind of feminist relationship. That's my impression of what entrustment is. And can can I ask you how you manage that business of dialect in translation? <laughs> um, because people are always moving in and out of it. Um, to either exclude, to include, um, to indicate, you know, passing through a different state of education, all sorts of things. Well, the simple answer is that she doesn't really write in dialect. Um, she writes, she uses some words in Neapolitan, occasionally a sentence. But when she writes in Italian, in dialect, she then proceeds in Italian. She doesn't write in Neapolitan uh-huh. dialect which makes the translator's job a lot easier because, first of all, I don't know Neapolitan, but second of all, to find an equivalent of, of a dialect is really impossible, I think. I, don't, I just don't know that there's any successful way of doing that. I mean, English just doesn't have the same kind of, of um, language that Italian has. And, in fact, many Italians, um, northern Italians, of whom there are two here, I believe, at least, um, would not have, wouldn't understand, if she had written in Neapolitan, they wouldn't understand it. Um, one other a quick example, I translated a book by a writer called Nina Agus, who's Sardinian, and she used, she used some Sardinian sentences in her, um, in her book, and they were, in the Italian edition, there were footnotes translating them into Italian. Uh, so, uh, just to say that there is not, there really isn't a way of doing that. Okay. So that she sort of got round it for you know, in, her, in herself. In Do you feel this this kind of? Um, I was at a panel with talking about translation this morning, and one translator from from the audience said, "I don't feel like I'm a translator. I feel like I'm a writer who doesn't have her own stories." So she's sort of rewriting the story, and I wondered um, if at any point you felt like that. But if you felt that you sort of despite the fact that you've never met and probably never will, you are communicating with one another. Does that, is... Yeah, that's true. I, I don't feel that I'm rewriting her story. I mean, I, that to me is a little bit alien, uh, even though it, I guess on some level it's true. But, um, but I do feel that, um, that there's some connection in some way. I, I don't know. I guess it's more unconscious, really, than anything else. I mean, I once was trying to study my my translation, my own translation process, and a lot of it is unconscious. I was really shocked to find. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's just plunge. 
plunge back a little bit into this kind of strange sort of psychological world. One of the things, one of the moments that I was hooked, and there are always minutes of moments of books that kind of really drag you in. But that bit very, relatively early on in uh, in my brilliant friend, when Lena describes being at a party and feeling her dissolving boundaries and this kind of sense she has of being otherworldly. But then the moments that she has repeatedly throughout the books of repudiating that kind of feeling, of just throwing away anything that seems abstract, that seems intellectual, of pushing away Lenu, of just saying, no, I, I won't think about this, I am only, you know, the going to work in the sausage factory to just push away the idea of anything else. That seems to me to provide the kind of dynamic force of, of the novels, in a way, that kind of forward propulsion. Uh, yeah, I mean, but Lenu's a genius at living, and... You know, Lina. You know, Lina does have this. She has this amazing way of bringing everything into her life, like mm. what she thinks and what she does. She has a natural kind of um, intellectual um, kind of attitude towards the world um, that Lenu knows she doesn't have. So they have this back and forth between art and life too. It does seem like Lina's life and Lenu's art, but then they steal from each other so much that it switches around again and. Um, and I, mean, I found the bursting boundaries thing, I kept on going back to those flashes because I didn't understand them on the first go. I didn't understand what was going on with them. They seemed, again, they were this, it's this relationship between something that was very realistic, um, realist and something very completely un- symbolic and like slightly, you know, kind of like a metaphor in the middle of a realist mm. novel. But it was mm. also, you're supposed to take it literally as well. I found it very confusing and strange and so I kept on honing in on those moments. I still don't, I tried to, work out what I thought about them but I still find them I think they're essential to the books and what it means for women's lives like how they you follow a path and then have to burst out of that path or have to break things in order to I don't know I yeah, well, know. that is the sort of, the, the kind of straightforward reading in a way you know it, it works on that level doesn't it one person gets away one person makes sure they get educated and the other person kind of somehow doesn't but although they're always talked about as the described as the Neapolitan novels there's so much movement in them all the kind of going away and coming back and moving around Lisa what do you think about that sort of that kind of forward backward drag and push pull of the narrative well I think we all have home within us don't we we all keep home within us and I think many of us through life have had I mean, I'm, I'm somebody who left home, yes? But I do have a friend who stayed home. Um, um, and in a sense, whatever I see this person, although it's not this kind of relationship at all, I mean, would that it were this extraordinary. <laughs> um, nonetheless, the, the, there's a sense in which, you know, the one who went and the one who stayed are always measuring each other. Mm. And for moments, because life is like that, because we all you think, oh my God, if only I had, if only I hadn't, um, you know, if only I'd stayed at school, if only I hadn't done a PhD. I mean, you know, you, 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 you have this kind of relationship. We've seen it in male novels. I think the difference here is that is what, we, what you were talking about before, that this seepage between them is even greater, or she intensifies it. Mm. Um, mm more than, than we, we really see. I think because the character, I mean, and this is just to go to your borders, I mean, I, you know, I don't like using terminology like this, but, but it, it's evocative terminology. There's a way in which the, the leader character to me is, is a classic hysteric. I mean, she is a woman <laughs> whose boundaries aren't there. Mm. She's always extraordinarily charismatic 
in whatever situation she's in. And at the same time, she seems to take over the other, um, so, so that you feel depleted by her. You feel that there's always a sting in the tail, even when she's just built you up. So, so um, there's that kind of you know, borderline, borderless activity going on between them. And perhaps... You know, Leilu has a little bit of that as well. The seepage is sort of fascinating because you sort of say it's almost unconscious some of your translation. So do you feel there's a seepage between you and Ferrante in some no, way? I, no, I don't think so, really. Okay. No, and I there's no think... Lila and Lenny relationship? Or... No? Between me and, and I, Ferrante? I, I'm well, no, being I fanciful, so. maybe. No, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I think you... Whatever, whoever, whatever author you're translating to a certain extent, I mean, it's... it's Perhaps it's more true in the case of Ferrante because there are certain things that are the same um, that you always, at, at a certain point, feel that... I, I, I would never say that I feel like I'm, that I'm the author, but I do feel this identification with the narrator, and especially in the first-person um, narrative. It is kind of unconscious. <laughs> I was really talking about the choice of words, but, but I suppose in some way, you know, you become the person that's writing the book, mm-hmm. even though... I, as I say, I would never say that I'm... I mean, I don't really think that I'm the person writing the book. No, no, it just I mean, it struck me that um, thinking quite a lot about the seepage between Lila and Lenu, it's an yeah. interesting parallel. It's just an interesting parallel, just that you're here. But yeah. perhaps it's unfair and a fanciful book. Well, I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, but it is, I mean, in the sense that, that it's a book in many senses about language, which yeah. you touched on. Um, yes, I think that's true. She is also this extraordinary writer of the unconscious. I mean, that, that sounds like a vapid and stupid thing to say because all writers tap into to stuff. That, but what she does, which, which is almost like, um, you know, she enacts the unconscious. So, so people do things that, without being aware of them that are really strange. It's not that you have an unreliable narrator or you know, Fitzgerald in a sense. It, it's just that her unreliability is un- unreliable in herself as well. You don't know where the action is next going to come Well, there are from. suddenly very often very kind of shocking moments. Well, not because they're intrinsically shocking necessarily, but because they don't seem to go in the narrative. There's ex- often when male characters do something. For example, there's a, a, an episode, a very kind of brief episode of transvestitism that comes like a kind of freight train through. I mean, like, what? The, that kind of, You think I must have misread that? That doesn't belong in this narrative. And that happens so kind of frequently, these sort of moments of and almost she, transgression, she, actually. She's brilliant at that. She's mm. absolutely brilliant. The she sort of hand grenades. Yeah, well. yeah. Just let's talk a little bit about, yeah. um, about her absence and her anonymity, not just per se, because obviously you know, she's given her own reasons for that. We can believe them or not believe them or think they're any part of the story. But as I read further into into these books, it did really bear in on me that, that it was no kind of accident. It's almost, they're almost the most fitting of books to have an anonymous creator. And not only that, but then they have in them a narrator who is a writer who nests her own books inside the narrative that she's telling. Ferrante is a writer who started with one kind of book and has now turned it into a larger project. It's just sort of a total kind of a hall of mirrors, smoke and mirrors, mirrors everywhere. It just seemed incredible to me. And I, I kind of feel that must be part of the, the sort of anonymity project, as it were. Does that seem right to anyone? Joanna, what do you... I don't care that I don't know who she is. I feel like I know who she is enough for me. Um, I, I feel very bored of all the 
pieces about her that start, oh, but Francie is a non... I mean, but also it's part of the appeal, obviously, like, you're all here, there's something exciting about it. But, um, you know, Jane Austen wrote under... She was just a lady. I mean, this is a very a long tradition of women writing on it anonymously, and it doesn't interest... I don't care who she But is. do you not think it's part of the artistic... That there's some link between this and the artistic project? The books... This book begins with somebody who wants to disappear. No, no, no. And I, I think I like... There's a particular idea that I've still... You know, one talks about these all the time with friends, and there's one really... I can't really talk about it because I don't want to ruin it for everybody, but there's one um, argument about the first, last book that... Because she does address this idea of what it's like to be a public author and what it's like to... And then she does make a very strong argument against being a public author, doing this sort of thing that we're doing. <laughs> so, um, but I, I can't... I, I, I'd love to talk about it, but I don't want to ruin it for everybody. Um, the one very general thing one can say is that, is that the character of Lenu, who's the narrator, does want to be a public author. Mm. She loves... The, the feedback that she gets, the buzz right. that she gets yeah. from being public. She loves the fact that people come and get articles from her. Um, she adores her success. She adores her celebrity. Um, so, so you know, again, in, in the, you know, this... this well, why wouldn't she really? Because no one's ever been very nice to her up until that point. That's true. But, 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 but if you take... If we're talking just about authorship mm. and anonymity. Mm. So I... She's created this character. So obviously that's also part of whoever Ferrante is. Um, and then the decision to be anonymous is, I think, a very interesting one because it's saying, in a, in a culture which, you know, in the Berlusconi years was so image um and, and, and so celebrity conscious, um, it, it's kind of saying, no. I mean, it, it's a clear rebellion, if you like, and, and saying, no, I won't buy into that culture. Mm. Um, and I think that's important. But I think an anonymity itself for writers is, I mean, I, I, I can imagine there are several people in this room who've written anonymously or pseudonymously. Mm. Um, just because, I think maybe this is the case even more so for women, although I think it happens for men too, that there's a kind of liberation to it. Mm. Um, there's a kind of sense that, you know, it's an adventure and, and nobody has to know what you've done. And because these books are quite sort of openly popular or wanting to be popular books. They're not sort of arcane or esoteric or, I mean, they deal with kind of, you know, the muddiness of life. Um, um, th there's, there's a sense that, that, okay, well, that's somewhere that perhaps, you know, an academic might not necessarily want to go within a particular kind of tradition. Or... There might be not, not I, what I mean. Not go is that in yourself when you're writing, you might want to go there anonymously. Yes, you might yes. want to be freed by yeah. the anonymity. That's the argument That's... James Wood made in his wonderful piece in the New Yorker, mm -hmm. saying that these books you almost have to be anonymous to be able to do to write this way. Um, yes, there's a difference between anonymity and, and pseudonymity. They are different things, aren't they? Yeah. Shall we um, take some questions from the audience, um, of which I feel they're maybe quite a few, um, could be delivered in English or Italian. We have some roving mics, I think. There is one. Thank you. Um, the more I, I um, advanced in, into this tetralogy, um, I, I had the idea that um, the characters of Lenu and Lila were um, used to speak about an inner conflict 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Which was externalized um, thanks to these two different characters, but that actually it was a, maybe an inner conflict so that maybe one was an alter ego of the other, and that they were actually two voices in one head, so that um, you could actually make a, a play out of it, um, where maybe in the beginning there's just one, then there are two. Well, that's I. Well, I, I felt that too. I mean, that is what, that. Yeah, that's that yeah. the idea. I mean, not in a, necessarily in a kind of literal sense that they're. You know, but but certainly in a kind of symbolic sense that they're two halves. What does everybody think? No, I mean people have. I think other other people have brought that up, and I think it's it's one interpretation, one way of reading it. But I think it's in some ways limiting. But on the other hand, you could have both ideas. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't actually. Yeah, it doesn't rule out other ideas. And what I very much liked about your question is that what you brought up about Ferranti. She takes ideas, but she embodies them, right? So. Um, I don't know if anyone's read this interview she did with Vanity Fair, but she talked about all the... I mean, she's read all of the kind of rad, radical feminists from 70 up to the current day. She's not she's not mucking around. She knows what she's doing, but she's not doing it. And, like, I, I've read Donna Haraway. Look, you know, she does it by, by embodying it and making it into a story and making it possible to have both both ideas, that there could be two people and one idea at the same time, which I think is really... Mm. <laughs> that's the best. Really. That's what we want. We have another question there, and then there's Justin straight in front of you. Um, okay, I'm going to... I don't know how concise a question this is, but I, one of the things that um, I thought was um, really radical in the kind of... in the Neapolitan novels was um, that the kind of radicality was, it was in the address, in the kind of... Um, way that they are paced and there's a kind of lack of control in the writing and um, and the image on the covers as well there's a kind of sense that I think um, I've read before is the address to the audience that she is addressing um, and I mean I just think about my, my sister lives in Italy and has um, you know given these out to her husband's aunts and I've, I've given copies of things away in that kind of free way and I think when you were talking, you mentioned something about your generation, maybe mine as well, in my 30s, and kind of other generations, that kind of sense of that you would, you would give these to your grandmother, you would speak them to your mother, and that... Um, that these are conversations you need to have, and they're well, difficult that, to have Well, as an address, as a novel, it is both, I mean, she talks about kind of critical theory and the kind of bit of being an academic within them, but they are, they, are, they seem, in a sense, a, a project that is, that is, is saying, you know, the these women are everywhere. The, the people I am writing to are everywhere. And in the sense that the individual novels, you talked about them being dangerous to the sense of self, then there's something about um, speaking to this enormous audience, really, that's mm -hmm. not 
um, so you just mean a literary them, readership or an academic sort readership. Of, form of, of, of yeah, a kind of, form. of a sort of almost, uh, giving them that kind of, you know, this is paraphrased, a sort of soap operatic kind of quality. Yes. There is actually a kind of real sort of point to that. It's a question about genre, isn't it? It's sort of saying that she's using these kind of soapy, this pace, this kind of yeah. trashy covers. I mean, they're not yeah. great covers, but like, <laughs> but oh, do you? Do you love them? Oh, does everyone else love them? Sorry. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. I love them now. I love them, as it were. <laughs> you know, I didn't love them. I couldn't understand them, and now I kind of do. So I have a kind of question. It's more a comment. It's very jet lagged, so it's like perhaps a bit spacey. Um, but you were talking about Donna Haraway, and you were kind of alluding to Lacan, and I was thinking about the namelessness of the author as a kind of um, idea with Lacan and language, and when you come into language, you come into the law, and you come into masculinity. And if you choose not to name yourself, you're evading that. Like, it seems almost a metonymic kind of relationship to that at the same time, I don't want to like make a comment or an idea that's kind of over-egging the pudding because obviously these books are making a real effort to move all the conversations about kind of feminism into a really popular discourse. But still, that gesture seems to be one that really ties into a kind of feminist gesture that would be more largely about language, which isn't even a question because I'm really too spacey to actually articulate this. <laughs> Into a very jet-lagged question, so I'll just pass the mic along. But we'll put those two. We'll put those two questions almost together. I mean, you're, yeah, you kind of well similar and interesting things about this playing with form and genre and this kind of importing very very kind of serious stuff into this sort of I hesitate to call it a format, but a certainly a kind of mode of discourse, I guess. Lisa, do you think it's what has actually? made it what it is, made people so receptive to it? Because I do, I mean, this is a question we also kind of need to ask is, well, I mean, yes, I find myself very addicted to them, so obviously does everybody here. It's quite difficult to see why, isn't it? You know, this is one of the few novels that's come my way in recent years that actually doesn't have a, 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 an encasement of irony. In other words, it, it, it works on the level of directness and passion. That's not because she cannot be ironical. It, it just means that it doesn't function within that particular very mm. contemporary idiom. Mm. And, I, and in that sense, it's much more like popular fiction, like genre fiction. And I think the intelligence and the, the sense of, of the passion, the directness, without the encasing of irony, is perhaps what, what's appealing to to younger generations as well. I mean, you can tell me, John, I don't know. <laughs> but, but I sense that the very directness of the voice is important. Let's have a, another question. You're absolutely, I think you've got that on, nail on the head there. But uh, there's a question there. Hello. Then we're going to go there, and then we'll go to, yeah, exactly, and then we'll go to the back of the room. Thank you. Um, I found your comment just now really, at least very apt about irony, because something that I was thinking uh, whilst reading these books was about the extent to which we fall in love or are en entranced by um, Lanou's account of Leela. Because to me, these books, they portray someone who's almost a superhero and a supervillain. Leela is the ultimate. She's so intelligent. She's, like, she's a genius. She's kind of evil, but she's also so benevolent as well. She's creative. She's analytical. She's everything. She's everything that Lenu wants to be. And in a way, 
Lenny becomes her in some respects. Um, however, is there a danger in believing too much in Lenny's account of Leela? Is there a way we can be seduced into seeing her in, in perhaps a, a way that's, yes, devoid of irony? Um, is that good? Is that bad? Just wondering. I certainly think, just, sort of, just because I immediately made me think of something, there is a point in one book, and I don't think this is giving anything away in particular, but where um, Lenu sees Leela doing something and somebody else says to her, well, yeah, but that's what she's like. And really quite late on in their lives, you know, middle age, but that's what she's like, that's what she's like all the time, that's what she, how she's regarded here. And you suddenly think she doesn't get all the context of her. Her relationship is huge and and she feels it but she doesn't know everything about her this is whole she's a whole other person in different contexts i think i think i think what ferranti does is she gives us the grounds for that speculation and quite concretely and she says things like alex is just and there are other bits too where you realize oh yes it could be seen otherwise i mean and do you want to add do you want to add something this and the, the book is full of reverses. I mean, who is the brilliant friend? I mean, that's, uh, that's the whole yeah, point of yeah, it. Then yeah, there's right, right. so many reverses. What Nino thinks of the two of them, what the mother thinks of them. There were all these moments that were like that all the way through. But yeah, you do have moments of thinking, Nina's amazing. Oh, my God. She's a Let me just bring in a rider question there. Well, there's also the interesting um, issue of Alfonso. Alfonso becoming Lila. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and they're mirroring each other, and Lenu never quite fixing on that. And there's a point where Leela says to Lenu angrily, I know how I'm made. And they're always talking about how people are made. Nino says she's made sexually weirdly or something, and then, you know, Lenu thinks she's made badly. I, I'd never come across this. I'm, yeah. I can't remember what the phrase was in Italian. Is it fatto? Yeah, it's fatal. 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 Everyone's in the conversation. This is exactly what we wanted. I know we are going to take that question. I'm losing control of the that, Over there. Yeah, I mean, I was just curious to hear maybe from the translator and from Lisa Apanyanesi about the, um, a bit more about the context, really, of, of the sort of feminist 70s in Italy because I think the thing that I really enjoyed was that in the world of kind of critical or political theory we've had nothing but autonomous post-autonomous Italian theorists right for I suppose 15 20 years now Negri, Lazzarato, Verno, Bifo all these people shoved down her neck and then suddenly you know very few um, feminist theorists from Italy from the same period translated to anything like the same degree um, apart from Silvia Federici and a few people. And I suppose what I really, really enjoyed was hearing the context that a lot of those writings came out of from a woman's perspective mm. um, and how f- different feminism felt in, through her voice in a way too because there's a sort of... There's a whole class dimension, isn't there? You know, so that she's the authentic worker and the authentic woman because she is from the Gorbals <laughs> equivalent, and yet she has to perform in a certain as a certain subject of their fascination, as well as be one of them when she's sort of sponsored by the erotas and the. It's you know, a very distinct movement in the book as well, right. going from one kind of role, sort of subservient role, to another in, in right. a sense. Right, and, and it feels like a cloak as well mm. for her because mm. actually to survive in the neighbourhood is to marry 
a Camorrist or to try get out through education and the absolute desperate hardship of their lives. You know, what produced her is a hysteric. I mean, she got thrown out of a window by her dad, you know, when she was eight or something. Um, so I suppose I was just a bit curious to hear a little bit more from you guys about that, that sort of context, really, and, and how you sort of understood that in terms of class and gender politics at the time. <laughs> Thank you. And Claire, then we'll go over here and then we'll go to I, the back. I don't think there's time to do that. I mean, I think that's a good <laughs> question. I think it's there in the books. I mean, yeah. you know, um, yeah, I mean, it's a tough world. I, I, you know, there are lots of things we forget because it's so long ago in a sense. I mean, you forget about illiteracy and literacy and particularly women, but also working class illiteracy. Mm. It was huge. I mean, so, so this whole, the whole kind of trajectory of the book. I mean, when I said the goggles, I said it deliberately because I think we were talking with English with Sally. There's, there's, you know, there's no English-British equivalent um, that I know about, and and so, you know, it's a, it's a it's a very tough world, and for the women in that world, it's it's kind of like doubly tough, um, and. The, the difference between the two characters in terms of language is extremely important, um, as it would have been in, in Britain up until the ladies. Without giving anything away about how it all ends, because I'm very keen that we don't, I have the sense, I don't know if you agree, that there's a certain innocence about Lenu in her understanding of what's going on in the wider world in Italy, whether it's to do with the communists, the red brigades, um, the mafia... There is a slight sense of opaqueness, I think, that she's not really there. And you get the sense that Leela is that on the button. She knows what's going on. And she gets impatient with her friends and says, you don't really understand. And so there's this strange thing that the character who's the author, the clever person, the person who's got out of Italy, somehow doesn't quite understand what's going on all around her. I don't know if any of you but see that, a, without well, giving away the end. kind of intellectualised and abstract to her, in a sense. Or also that... Uh, other agendas are operating. Maybe that's what it is. The, the only other thing I would say about that is that, you know, when you're living through something, you don't actually know more. You know things in retrospect. And I know from having gone through that period, I mean, you used to have all kinds of people wandering through now. Bigadi Rossi would be there one day and, you know, um, angry brigades. And they, I didn't know. I mean, I knew that they were, you know, they talked this language of... of um, <laughs> but, but who, knew, who knew what they were up about? I mean, I mean you know, we didn't know we were, well, we were young, and, yeah. and so so things kind of happened. I think the thing about uh, Leela is that she knows in her bones because she lives dangerously. She she has an imagination of disaster because she was thrown out of the window because all the people around her are violent. Well, ignored back of the room. Now is your moment, including men if they're there. Here is one. Hello. Hello. Um, yes, wh- one thing I really love in it is the dramatist Personi. Um, and it's so neat and clear and lucid, and it gives you a hint of what the story sometimes um, conceals or on purpose, which can be the, the past, quite mysterious to those girls, of what happened in the war, the interlocking family feuds, the black market, and even the future. And sometimes I see signs of plots she thought about toying with and didn't take yeah. even. In the first dramatist persona, you have a sense that she wants Leela to have a lot of children. Ends up with just Reno and one girl. Um, and then um, uh, there's a sense, also I feel at one point, that she was toying with the idea of a, a Lenu Enzo 
relationship rather than a Leela. And uh, I don't know whether that's... And you're just, reading all this in from those... From the dramatist those... person. And just what... what my, the actual content of my question, I think that relates somehow to Wolf Hall and the popularity of... I think there's a, an equivalency between Wolf Hall's success in this country and um, the Neapolitan tetralogy success in Italy and here. And I don't know what that is, but I just wondered... Do you mean it's a sort of kind of dynastic struggle, that sort of thing? Yeah, why not? Think? That kind of thing. <laughs> was a really good question. Thank you. I, too, love the dramatist persona. And I think they give it a kind of folkloric quality because I think... You know, the shoemaker's family, to me, makes me think of a kind of fairy tale. But I don't know. That's, that's an oddness that I think I... Maybe I'd be alone in that. Well, I, I never read the, really read the dramatis persona until I... Um, after the books were translated, I had to translate them. <laughs> so then I felt it was always a matter of just getting in the important facts. Um, I, didn't, I hadn't really read them as reading, I think. Oh, I'm, it's funny, I really did. I read them almost like as a little prologue to the books, funnily enough. I don't know why. Well, and also, if it's not in your culture, a lot of, you know, you're trying to distinguish between names that, you know... As well as, as their you know, proper names. And, and um, it's a bit like reading Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. I mean, you actually need that list. And, and the fact that they change from book to book is interesting because she keeps you up with the family yeah. doing mm. it in mm. a kind of cool way. They'll, soon they'll be published as a tiny kind of gift book. You know that, don't you? Yes. Who else do we have there? I can see you out of the corner of my eye, person in the L shape. We may end, we may end with you. Um, just a thought that uh, one thing that seems to be emerging in this discussion is a frequency of comments rather than questions. And I feel like part of that is maybe due to the fact that in reading Ferranti, you feel such an ownership of your own reading process and... Reading's always personal, but with her it feels even more so. It feels, you sort of ingest her books. It feels so deep and complete and yours. And, and it seems to be just this kind of wonderful process where everyone here has something really earnest to say about Ferrante. <laughs> because in a way, the last thing you need in reading her books is guidance. Like you have your own complete opinion in a way. But do you mean you think we kind of internalise them a bit as well? Well, then, well, maybe. But But then what a great thing is, you know, when you get together with a friend or in a group like this, I've never been in a a large group of admirers, but that people have, you know, ferocious opinions about her and it's so deeply felt and her books invite that and her sentences make you feel like they're yours, you know? It's so strong. (laughs) Do we all feel that sense of ownership, do you think? I kind of know what you mean, although I also think... She is a massive conversation starter. I mean, I do think you, you do sort of dispute as well. And I think that's kind of interesting. What do we all think? Do we feel that we kind of have her somehow? Um, well, I, 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 don't, I don't feel like ownership. But what I do feel very grateful for her is being able to talk about things that I knew but didn't know how to talk about them with people. So um, the, the, the article that I wrote starts with a section... In fact, I might as well confess it. I invited lots of friends around my age to come to my house and said, I, I, can't, I can't bear the thought of having to write a piece about Ferrante. It means so much to everybody. It's exactly the thing of ownership. How on earth am I going to do it? No one cares what I think, but I want to know what everyone's thinking at this point in time. So I got lots of pizza, I got lots of wine, and we just talked. And what that conversation, that conversation was so many of the things that were in my article came from those people, what people said and what they thought and what we ended up discussing. And, you know, it was just three hours, pure 
book talk and things we needed to talk about, things that we weren't able to talk about before, things that are kind of embarrassing or like seem silly or seem too small or too big or like how on earth are you supposed to talk about them? And so I, I feel ownership, but I also feel um, it's shared ownership or something, but it's for all of us and it. Did you crowdsource your review? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, no, it's not by me. I mean, that name, I'm as well, Joanna Biggs is basically Daniel Ferrante. So it's sort of collective. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think we have time for one last question, and it's over here. If you still want to ask it, you might, you might feel it's been answered. Thank you. I'm glad somebody mentioned um, Dostoevsky. Because reading Elena Ferranti, especially earlier works, I thought if, for example, crime and punishment was a mental anguish, uh, her earlier works were certainly a physical anguish. And I, to my great shame, I had to stop reading her because I had to stop feeling all this stuff, physical pain that was coming so strongly from her books. And I, I guess the question is, why so much physical pain? Is it because if we're thinking about understanding, you know, how it feels to live in a particular period, in a particular city, to inhabit a street, we almost have to go back to the first place that we inhabited, you know, the mother's body, separate from it, feel the, I don't know, the pain of separation or something, to understand something from there, to be able to understand the place in a bigger world. What do you think? Physical pain, why so physical, why so much pain? And I guess there is partly a kind of movement away from it. There is less pain as, as it goes, but there is still great pain. Great pain I comes all throughout. She's a writer who understands violence, not mm. in, any, yeah. in any kind of by rote way, um, but actually in terms of everyday life. I mean, I, by rote, I mean not in the big moments, oh, I've been traumatized. It's not like that. There is no trauma in her books. I mean, it's, it's not pat and, and easy. It's actually about everyday life. And, and she actually understands sexual relations as needing violence and when it seems overwhelming. I mean, that there is actually, not, not because you're a victim of violence as a woman, not at all. Um, it's not about victimization. She's got a completely different, and indeed very much like Beauvoir in some ways, language around all that. And I think that's fascinating about her and very, very useful at this moment. <coughs> Yeah, they are painful. <laughs> it's painful as you don't sleep. They're painful as in it's too much. It's too yeah. It's really they're painful. an assault. They are an assault in some ways. No, but you need that they? sometimes. Mm. You can't live your life cased up and not thinking about these things. I think that is that is terrible. But we are we are up here. If you if you haven't had your question um, answered, um, and will sign the books as an and will sign the books. Thank you so much. That was I've been to you do loads of sort of events where people are, you know, the audience is full of fans and full of readers, but this has felt like the most sort of intense, cleverest book club ever. It's been amazing. What's my thing? I've never I've never seen so many hands go up when you say, Have you read the book, let alone have you read all four? It's extraordinary. I know. My whole experience. Really amazing. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming and thank you to my panel. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.